Stay hungry, stay foolish. I once heard the following as the definition of hell. On your last day on earth, the person you could have become meets the person you became. We go through life doing stuff often without assessing is it the right stuff. Often we don't even do stuff for ourselves. We end up working for the company. We end up working for our friends. We end up working for anyone else doing what they want. Nothing for us. Not having enough time is a huge cause of stress in today's society. And today's show is dedicated to shining a light on how we can manage our time better to relieve that stress. The international expert on time investment and author of Invest Your Time Like Money joins us today. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth Grace Saunders. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for investing your time in The Innovation Show. My pleasure. Many of us assume success is interlinked with achievement and also with the suffering and stress that we put into a task that we have to actually cause ourselves stress in order to achieve. And you shine a light on that and show that there's a totally different way. Yes, it's true. Well, in my book, How to Invest Your Time Like Money, I do start out with addressing some of these mindsets because I think so often people might hear what you just shared at the beginning of the show and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know I should change, but I can't. And they just cut themselves off before they've even tried. And so I would encourage people, if you're listening right now, to even open yourself up to the possibility that maybe you don't have to suffer so much. And maybe you can also be successful at the same time. I loved the concept because people think that time is just a passive thing, but we can actually take control of it. And as you say in the book, when you do get control of it, it's like you go through life in the driver's seat instead of the trunk of the car. Exactly. Exactly. That was actually a quote from my coaching client. And I think what so often happens is that people never stop to really think about being proactive with their time. So it's very much a like, oh, everyone else is telling me how I have to spend my time. Like my boss says I need to get to work by this time. So that determines when I get up. Or I have all these meetings that are always popping up on my calendar or email. And so I need to respond to all of that. This is what everyone else wants of me at the end of the day. And they never really stop to think about, well, what is it the, the life that I want to create? And in regards to getting in the driver's seat versus being in the trunk and also disconnecting success from suffering, sometimes it's even just very, very small changes. Um, so for example, like one of the smallest changes that you can make is to try taking a few short breaks throughout the day. Maybe it's only five to 10 minutes long where you're away from your computer, not multitasking, um, maybe even away from your phone. Go on a walk or take time to think or take time to chat with a colleague at work or your significant other or friends. And even something as small as that is shown to greatly improve your productivity throughout the day and to leave you feeling less burnt out at night. So that's one example of sometimes these little things we can do can make a big difference. And there's also much larger things we can do, which of course I'm happy to talk about also in terms of designing our life. And you recognize in the book 
three common barriers that stop us from taking control of our time? It'd be great to share them with our audience. The three common barriers are number one, blaming others. So it's everyone else's fault that my time management is bad or I don't have any time. Number two is this whole connection of success and suffering. So in order to be successful, I have to suffer. And then number three is this barrier of defending our past. So we're afraid to change, maybe afraid to set better boundaries at work or to do things that are better for our health. Because if we do so, it may make us feel guilty that we actually hadn't made those changes earlier and perhaps make us feel bad about what we've done in the past. And could we dive a little bit deeper into stuff like, for example, stop blaming others? Because I've heard this before, this great saying that when you point the finger, there's three pointing back at yourself. And you do this so well in the book, you bring that to life and you say, these are how you're doing it. Because people hear that and they can't relate it to themselves, but you do a great job of that. In the book, I have a couple different ways I approach this. So one is talking about it from a psychology perspective of something called the Cartman drama triangle. And then secondly, talking about just some practical steps to get out of this stuck place. I'll start with describing this triangle, which is where we're playing the blame game, where it's everyone else's fault that we have no time. And so on this triangle, we have three points. The upper right point we'll say is the rescuer. The bottom point, if the triangle is on its point, we'll say is the victim. And then the upper left point is where we have the self-protector. Sometimes it's called the persecutor in the Cartman drama triangle. And what happens when we're operating in this place with our time is that we, we don't see that we actually have ownership to be healthy and make good choices. We see it as everyone else's fault. So for example, if we're in the victim position, it might sound something like this. I can't believe everyone keeps giving me so much work to do all the time. They don't understand how I don't have any time. I can never exercise. I can never take time for myself. I don't even get enough sleep because everyone just doesn't care about me and gives me more and more work and there's nothing I can do about it. So that's what that would sound like. If you're in the rescuer role in the upper right, you start feeling resentful because you're like, no one else can take care of themselves. So I need to help them all the time. Like you see people as victims. And so you're like, well, they can't get their work done well enough or fast enough or good enough, or I don't trust them. So I have to do my own work. Plus I have to do theirs. And so you're jumping in and taking on work. No one even asked you to help with or to do, but you're just taking it on and then being angry that you have to take it on for other people when it wasn't actually your job. Up in the upper left, we have the self-protector or persecutor. That's someone who's just like grumpy, grumpy bear. (laughs) So someone asks them to do something and they're like, no, absolutely not. Like, I'm not helping you. I'm not doing anything. Like, why can't you get your act together? And they're most likely fairly insecure about their ability to get things done. And instead of like owning that and recognizing that they need to get their life in order a little bit more and 
be more productive or proactive, they just try to scare everyone away. You know, these are the people in the office, everyone's tiptoeing around because they might bark. Sometimes those people, they used to not be like that and they changed somewhat. Yeah. They become so entrenched in their habits and the way they work. They can't actually have the self-awareness to see that they're actually contributing to the problem. And aren't they often the people who will go, oh, people are terrible in my company, everybody's useless, but they actually won't delegate. It'd be great to look at your solutions to get around that so you don't become grumpy bear. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think a lot of times people become very grumpy when they just feel overwhelmed. You know, they feel overwhelmed or incapable of keeping up. And so they just get controlling or angry. And it's not that they're bad people. They just don't know how to manage it. In regards to how we get out of this triangle, like this is not how we want to be. It is how a lot of people are with their time, but not where we want to be. So the first thing you need to do is just observe yourself to say, okay, where am I falling in this situation? And this can be true at work or it can be true at home. So it's not just a professional thing, but really ask yourself, okay, am I giving myself a pity party? I'm feeling like I'm always the victim and I can't do everything and um, it's not fair. Um, Am I someone that's maybe overreacting? So I'm jumping into trying to help being the rescuer. Or am I someone that's just angry at people and feels resentful they're even asking for help? So first off, just observe yourself and be honest. Stop looking at everyone else and just look at yourself. Like, how am I responding to what's happening? Then you need to realize, okay, I do have a role in this. Yes, maybe maybe other people have played a part in how I feel or what's going on, but it's not just them. It's also me. That is really important to recognize. And then once you recognize that, you want to commit to self-mastery. So I'll give you kind of some narratives about what that would sound like. So for example, let's say someone feels like the victim. Like everyone piles work on me all the time. I have too much to do. What self-mastery would sound like in recognizing your role is, okay, I need to take ownership of communicating. Maybe people are giving me too much work, so I need to articulate that I need more time to get certain work done or that I need help with delegating or maybe I need help with even prioritizing. And if I just ask my boss, he could tell me, oh, it's fine for you to do these you know, two or three things this week. And then these other things, it's okay if they get done a few weeks later. You don't need to stay at work until one in the morning to get these done. So as a victim, you just really need to get out of that and take ownership of communicating your needs, being aware of what's your part and how you can um, work to get to a good solution. If you're someone who's more in the rescuer category, so you're always jumping in and taking on other people's work, but then being upset you had to do that, what self-mastery sounds like and recognizing your role is oftentimes stop volunteering for things. So don't jump in and volunteer when no one asks you for help. Even if you think you know how to do something better or you're very capable, stop yourself. Respect people enough to let them try, to let them do things their way. If they ask for your help and it's appropriate, you can offer it or you can give it, but you don't need to just jump in and take things on because you're overwhelming yourself and not giving yourself time for what you need to do. 
And then finally, if you're in the role of this self-protector or persecutor and you want to commit to self-mastery, you actually just have to start by getting more in touch with your own emotions and showing empathy towards yourself. So this requires really stepping away from the situation and saying, okay, you know, I feel overwhelmed or maybe I feel threatened because people are asking me for these things if they're done. I haven't completed them yet and maybe I feel even guilty about that. And just get in touch with your feelings and show yourself self-compassion that it's okay to feel overwhelmed sometimes. It's okay to you know, have to tell people you're not done with something. And then also to show empathy for others. So for example, maybe they're following up with you not because they're trying to get you in trouble or they're upset. Maybe they just need to know because their boss is asking and to recognize that they have needs too for information and getting things done. And so if you really want to get out of whatever time management issues you're in, you have to recognize that blaming other people gets you nowhere, but really recognizing your role, taking ownership, and committing to self-mastery really allows you to take your whole time management to the next level. Yeah, and it's so important, isn't it, where you have both the psychological safety in your workplace to be able to say, I'm overwhelmed or I need help or I'm out of my depth here, I need more time. But also I find a lot of people don't like to say, I actually have a lot on my plate at the moment. I'm not going to get to this. So they're almost afraid to say no or no, not yet. Yeah, people are afraid. But one of the phrases actually, one of my other books is reality always wins. So you can either make people happy on the front end by not telling them the actual truth about whether you can get something done, or you can actually make them very happy at the back end by being honest and setting expectations appropriately. So I understand it feels vulnerable, but it's it's just the reality. And the more you live in reality, the more freedom you have to not be stressed out. And Elizabeth, you talk about, and this is probably more if we zoom up in the helicopter a little bit, the effect of our early past messages and also things like learned helplessness, things that are in our psyche or in our paradigm are patterns that we have developed over time. The idea of learned helplessness, for those who aren't aware of it, it's again, it's a psychology term. What it's based on, and it can be with your time management, but it can really be any situation, is when you had a situation in the past where it was an uncontrollable event. So for example, perhaps you grew up in a home where it, it wasn't okay to express your feelings or it wasn't okay to say that you needed help. And so if you grew up in an environment where maybe when you expressed to your mom or your dad, like, I don't, I don't know how to do this or I need help, if they responded very negatively to that situation, that can create a sense of of this idea of learned helplessness that that no matter what I do, I can't improve my situation and it's just hopeless. So why should I even try? Um, and unfortunately, what happens is that you can carry that into other environments. So let's say that happened with your parents and then you go to school and your teachers will be very happy to answer your questions and want to know when you need help. But because you have the paradigm that 
they that people don't help you and it's not okay to not know, you don't raise your hand in class and let your teachers know when you have a question and so then you're doing poorly in school. And so the idea of this with our time management, so taking it back to that, is that there legitimately may have been times in your past when you didn't have a supportive environment. So perhaps you were, um, perhaps it was, you know, really bad time with the economy and a bunch of people were let go in your company and you were taking on a lot of extra work and you went to your boss and said, I need help prioritizing and I'm trying to do three people's jobs. I, I don't know how to get this all done. And maybe, hopefully this didn't happen, but it, it might have, your boss might've said something not nice, like, well, you should be happy you have a job, just deal with it. And so that can create the sense of learned helplessness that even in new jobs, I can't ask for prioritization or it's not okay to say I'm overwhelmed. And what's important in this situation is to just recognize if you are stuck in a paradigm of thinking that there's no way out and no way to improve. And then if you recognize that you you are in that paradigm, step back and really look at whether the reality is the same. Like maybe you're in a new company with a new boss who really wants to support you and it's just in your mind that you can't ask for help. And then once you recognize, oh, okay, well, maybe I'm in a new environment, the way you get out of learned helplessness is by taking action. So experimenting and trying out, maybe in a very small way, asking your boss for assistance with prioritization or with saying no to certain things and see what happens. And most likely, you'll be very pleasantly surprised to see that there are are people that want to help you and there are ways to improve your situation, even if in the past um, that wasn't the case. So that's, that's, I suppose, our our conditioning from our past. And then we bring that conditioning into the workplace. It'd be great to now put the workplace under a microscope and see how we can break paradigms and meetings. For example, I'm overwhelmed. How do I deal with that? How do I start? So if you're feeling overwhelmed, one of the first things you want to do is to step back and assess the situation from a a very, I would say, factual point of view. So in its simplest forms, you can pull up your calendar. So your calendar, if you want to think about it in terms of money, is your budget. So that's your weekly budget of how many hours there are this week. And when I look at my calendar, I really like to look at it in a week view. And usually I will adjust my calendar settings. So it will be the week will start on Monday and go through Sunday. So I'll see like Monday through Sunday week view. And so pull that up, see what's on your calendar. And then if you have a project list or a task list or a way that you document what you're working on, pull that out, you know, whether it's on paper or app or project management system. And I just want you to do a quick visual check and see what's going on there. And if you're like some people, you might discover that you have no open time in your schedule. Your schedule got so packed with meetings that there's no space. So no wonder you're overwhelmed. You can barely answer email, let alone get work done. So take pull up your calendar and look at the situation. And if, if like I said, it's completely packed, 
there's a reason that you're feeling overwhelmed. You have no time to get work done. What you need to do from there is to start working on getting clear on how much time you need to actually get the projects or get the email or other responsibilities done that you need to do at work. And what that looks like is beginning to guard certain parts of your schedule to get work done. Um, Some of my coaching clients will do that as a recurring time each day in the morning. So for example, I had some coaching clients that would block out about two hours before lunch in order to get work done. So maybe do a quick email check and then get into working on focused, concentrated work and make sure that gets done before lunch. And then they can go into all the other meetings they have throughout the day. I have other coaching clients where it works better for them to pick a few longer chunks throughout the week when they can get work done. So maybe a Tuesday afternoon and a Thursday morning. And so they literally will put this in their calendar, recurring event, big block of time, like not allowed to schedule meetings with me so that they can actually get work done during the week. Other individuals also will put in time for things like email. So maybe 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes midday, another 30 minutes end of day to really block in that time to get work done. And why this is so important is that, again, reality always wins. So if you're not saving time for what you need to do, you'll end up trying to fit that in at night when you're very tired or on the weekend and just end up so frustrated versus if you really start to set aside that time during the week for what are your priorities and then have the other meetings fit around that it creates a better flow and a better ability for you to get things done during the day and not feel so time pressured. And it actually slows the pace because when you don't constantly answer email and when you don't um, spend all of your time in meetings, it allows those things to stretch out over time a little bit more in a good way so that it doesn't feel so incessant. There's one thing I kind of glossed over, and I think this is really important. And I see this a lot with younger workers. So people who are in more junior positions coming up through the company, that they are afraid to say no because they're afraid that it looks like failure. And I thought you talk about pinpointing your pain and understanding why you're afraid to push back. In terms of that and maybe being afraid to say no or perhaps being afraid to do what I just suggested of, you know, blocking out some time in your schedule, it's important that you you think about it and you're like, it's am I afraid to say no because I feel like other people are smarter than me or if I was a really good worker, I wouldn't need this time or am I afraid that if I ever say no, you know, I'll be fired and by really getting clear on exactly what you're afraid of, you can then address that fear in a logical way and even talk, you know, to a friend if it's helpful to you or some other reliable person and just get feedback. And I just want to tell you as a time management coach who's worked with clients all over the world, and I've been doing this for almost 10 years, um, that you're not stupid. (laughs) You're not incapable. It's highly unlikely that you would have job issues 
by setting boundaries or by saying no occasionally. There are a few environments where that might be the case, but they are very, very rare. Um, And I work with people in all different backgrounds, but including people who are executives, people who are consultants, um, owners of businesses, all different levels, and even people at a very high level, they have to do this too. It doesn't mean you're not smart. It doesn't mean you're not capable. It doesn't mean you're not a hard worker. It just means you're human and there's only so much work that can be done and you need to protect the time to be able to do that. So you're right. It is so important to pinpoint, well, what am I actually afraid of? What's that real fear, that pain? And then really question whether that's logical and valid or if it's something that's just holding you back. Um, but isn't actually true. I suppose we've teed up a lot of the challenges and problems. And I often see this with the with the show, for example, that we will talk about adults limiting the amount of exposure to technology that children have, or we talk about the world's moving at such a pace that it's confusing for millennials or some type of thing. But it's actually all of us. And I thought I was great, delighted you said this, that time management starts at the very top of the organization all the way to the very bottom or all the way to your children because we're not taught how to manage our time ever so how are we ever expected to be great at this and this is why people like you doing this fantastic work is so important especially in in today's world of disruption and constant change it's really so important and in saying that it'd be great to now look at your solution so your your time investment formula which is in a mathematical formula that aligns expectations with results. Yes, I'd be happy to share. And by the way, I completely agree with you. People haven't learned this and it's not their fault. <laughs> it's really not their fault. And even people that used to be good at time management, I find they often need to uplevel their skills just because the expectations have gotten so much higher with technology in a way that people didn't have to deal with before. In terms of the formula, I'm going to lay it out in terms of what time investment success looks like. So this is what we're aspiring for. And then also time debt stress. So what is true of many people, but is not how we want to live. So if we want to be successful with our time, our external expectations plus the internal expectations of our time need to be less than or equal to 24 hours minus time for self-care. So self-care would be things like sleeping, eating, exercise. If we are stressed out, so we're having time debt stress, what is happening is that our external expectations plus internal expectations of our time is greater than 24 hours minus the time for self-care. So basically, we're in debt. We're committing to others or committing to ourselves to do far more in a day than we actually have time to get done. And because of that, Elizabeth, then we live in this world of constant disappointment. And and this is one of the things I thought, you say this right up at the start of the book, one of the biggest causes of stress is a feeling that I don't have enough time to do things. And 
we live in this constant kind of fight or flight mode where we're living with high cortisol levels, high tension, high stress, and that leads to people sipping on wine and trying to find releases. They're all external solutions rather than looking inside or looking at in the mirror and going, what can I do about this that I can control? Exactly, exactly. And as we were talking about at the very beginning, there's actually a lot of choice you have, even if it's just a five to 10 minute break a few times a day to get perspective, calm yourself. Even five minutes of walking outside has shown to have positive psychological benefits, um, physiological benefits, emotional benefits. So why do we deprive ourselves of these things? (laughs) When we have the ability to make choices, big and small. So we might move on because you go further than just giving a canvas of how you can deal with this. You go to talking about this, and I loved this because I've never seen this before, calculating a time budget. What we want to do is to start out with our 24 hours. So that's our 24 hours in a day. And then figure out the basics of self-care because this is so important to our health and happiness. So for example, let's say you sleep about seven hours a night. You spend about an hour on eating throughout the day, maybe two hours on personal grooming. So that would be, you know, showering, getting dressed, all that good stuff. So that would give us about 10 hours on self-care. So what we do to calculate our daily time budget is to then take 24 hours minus 10, so for self-care, and that leaves us with 14 hours a day. And then from there, what you want to do to figure out, okay, how much time do I have, is to calculate the daily investment in external expectations. So that would be things like going to work, your commute, um, maybe if you're going to school or have other responsibilities. And then also internal expectations. So these are things we want to do for ourselves. So maybe exercise, spend time on finances, some sort of prayer, meditation, or personal development. And when we write those up for the day and estimate how much time each one will take, we can then do the total and figure out whether that is more or less than 14 hours a day. And if it's a lot more than 14 hours a day, we're definitely in time debt because we are like, I'm going to, you know, commute commute to work and in the morning I'm going to work out and clean the house and do meditation and make an amazing breakfast. And then at the end of the day, after I get home from work, I'm going to read a book and call five friends and do this and do that. And then we wonder why it's not all getting done. And the reason it's not getting done is because we started out without a realistic sense of our time budget, how much time we actually had to do all those things. The other thing you talk about then is just as with finances, we can be penny wise and pound foolish. It's the same with our time. And you you talk about focusing on the big fish first. Right. So for example, I find that some people get really obsessed with like time management tools. Like they think, oh, um, 
you know, if I just had the perfect app or I just had this perfect email thing, then everything would be great with my time. But often that is not actually the case. And so if we're looking at kind of big picture, so being um, pound wise instead of pound foolish, you might want to consider things like assessing at work. Is there maybe a whole project that either you shouldn't be on or that you should really ask for help in terms of having another team member help? Or um, outside of work, you know, have you put pretty high expectations of yourself? So for example, I have a coaching client who she has a quite a demanding job. She's married, um, has a dog, and also had quite a few volunteer commitments. And then she told herself, and I want to run a marathon. And when she said that, I was like, hmm, I don't know about that. Like, I definitely want to encourage exercise, but she really didn't have the time capacity to be running a marathon. And so in that case, being, you know, pound wise was saying in this particular situation, yes, I can exercise. And that's a great thing to make time for that. But if I just take that whole big pressure off myself that I need to train for a marathon and allow myself to do something smaller, immediately so much more relief, so much more time, and so much less pressure. So before you start to get really nitpicky about smaller things, look at the big picture if there's anything that you can eliminate from your schedule completely or reduce so that you're not feeling stressed out. And you talk about clarifying your priorities. So this is totally interlinked here. And I might jump ahead a bit because you talk about a process that I hadn't heard before, which is the INO process, linking them to your calendar that you talked about earlier on. So when you do make out your priority for the day, you add a second layer, which is this INO layer. Yes, I'd be happy to share. And that's something that I developed. I never never heard anyone talk about it either. (laughs) Um, But I created it as a way to help people have a different paradigm for thinking about investing their time. So I will um, basically walk people through what it means and how you can apply this. So in terms of the I-N-O technique, I stands for investment, N stands for neutral, and O stands for optimized. I'm going to give you an example in financial terms to help people understand what that sounds like or looks like, and then I'll translate it to how you're approaching your time management. So in financial terms, an investment activity is something where if you put money into it, you get more out of it than you put in, or you hope to get more out of it (laughs) than you put in. So maybe it's something in stocks or real estate or that sort of thing where an additional dollar in gives you more than an additional dollar out. A neutral activity is more one-to-one ratio where you put money into something and you get about out of it what you put in. So for example, maybe it's groceries. You know, you buy a loaf of bread and you eat a loaf of bread and spending a lot more on the bread likely won't give you a ton more value. And then an optimized activity in regards to finances would be something like insurance. If we're getting the exact same insurance, the exact same rate, um, we don't want to pay any more for it because that's just an increased expense. 
So when we're looking at this in regards to how we're approaching our activities with our time, an investment activity is something where if we put more time into it, it's likely to bring a big return. So for example, maybe you have a presentation at work where if you do a great job on it, it could lead to great exposure, maybe even a promotion. So when you're categorizing that in your week, that's something where you want to spend more time on and really go the extra mile if needed. A neutral activity might be something like a routine staff meeting where it needs to get done and it's a good thing to do, but putting a lot more time into it won't make a huge difference. And then finally, an optimized activity might be something like answering email or routine administrative activities where the more time you spend on it, it's again, it's an expense. There's no added value. And what's so sad is often what gets cut out of people's schedules is the investment activities or like doing them at all or doing them well, when really we should be reducing the amount of time in our neutral and optimized activities to maximize the amount of time in the investment activities, whether it's a special project or business development or whatever that activity is. I have to say, I loved that framework, Elizabeth. It was really, really great. And and I loved your analogy here. So you say there's a reason some expenses are taken out at source from our paycheck. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd spend that money on something shinier. You say, take that analogy in your head, hold it there, and then replace that with your priorities. And some priorities need to be taken out at source. Those are things like self-care, their you know, important work priorities, and then also our personal priorities. Oftentimes, You know, at the beginning of this show, you were talking about hell is meeting the person you could have been. Um, How sad is it when you get to the end of your life and you realize the people I really loved and I really cared about, I was constantly neglecting for some work project. I don't even remember what it was, (laughs) you know, so we really want to think about um, what is it, like you said, we take out at source. So out of your paycheck right away, non-negotiable. So At the end of our lives, we're proud of how we've invested our time. So it'd be great to dive a little bit into this now and look at how do we establish routines for recurring time costs? Yes. So routines for recurring time costs is one of the best ways that you can make sure that you are doing what's important and then also being as efficient as possible. And so in regards to that, each one of us might have things that are a little bit different, um, but the principles are the same. So I want you to think about things in your life that need to get done on a regular basis. So it may be things around the home, things with your family, or things at work. So for example, maybe you have meeting prep that you need to do each week for a certain meeting or um, email typically needs to get answered almost every day. So for those activities, what you want to do is identify what they are, estimate about how much time you think they need to get done, figure out what time of day or time of week is good to do them, and then put them in your calendar as a recurring activity. So that could be everything from your daily planning to email to, for example, um, I own a business, of course, and 
on a monthly basis, I have the first Wednesday of every month blocked out for going through finances because I don't know about other people, but that's not my favorite part of running a business, but I know it needs to get done. And by simply having that as a recurring event, being aware it needs to happen, and blocking in the time regularly, um, it makes it so much easier to get done. We've established how we prioritize major decisions based on what's important in our value system or our priorities and that we don't blindly follow our calendar. But it'd be great to talk about the last piece that you talk about. And this is realizing that we can't aim for perfection because there's no such thing and that we need to aim for growth instead. Exactly. And I think that really, and I don't mean to discourage people, this isn't meant to be discouraging, but just the reality that time management or time investment is really a lifestyle change. It's not something that you just master today and then you never have to think about again. It's an ongoing process that we're all working on, all improving, and it's dynamic day by day. And I really encourage you wherever you're at that each small step counts. So even if it's just taking a break or one day a week, leaving work a little earlier, or one time this week, asking someone for help or not volunteering for something. All of those things make a difference. And even when we have the best of time management, we still sometimes make mistakes or have things we regret doing or we're not as efficient as possible. And Instead of getting upset and thinking, oh, things didn't go right according to my schedule, give yourself grace. Don't worry about perfection and just say, okay, well, what can I learn from this? How can I improve tomorrow? Or is there anything I can even do today to make this better? And so it's really, really important that each day we're looking to be a little better, learn a little more, do the best we can and not get so worried about perfection that we just quit. Fantastic, Elizabeth. And it'd be great to share with our audience, where can they find out more about you, about your work? And I know you have a new book, for example. Yeah, so um, I'm Elizabeth Grace Saunders. So that's easy to find if you if you need my name. And then my website is reallifee.com. So that's R-E-A-L-L-I-F-E, and then another E.com. And my newest book is called Divine Time Management. So I've written three books, How to Invest Your Time Like Money is my second. My third is called Divine Time Management. And that's actually more on a faith-based approach to time. So if you're interested in the spiritual aspect, um, that is also available. Elizabeth Grace Saunders, time management expert and author of How to Invest Your Time Like Money. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure.